uveal melanoma carries a risk of metastasis, which may occur before the disease is detected. And even when uveal melanoma is treated, there's a good chance that the radiation used during therapy could result in radiation retinopathy. I'm Greg Notstein, that's Scott Kurzwanis, and this is New Retina Radio from Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. Dr. Prithvi Maruthian Jaya reviews the state of uveal melanoma therapies in clinical trials and discusses how doctors might employ new tactics to address metastatic disease. And Dr. Amy Scheffler outlines a trial examining how patients with radiation retinopathy respond to anti-VEGF therapy. How could this change the visual function of patients whose cancer treatments left them visually impaired? Stay with us for the news you need to know. We're at the AAO annual meeting in San Francisco, interviewing the movers and shakers. This podcast is brought to you by Genentech Ophthalmology. At Genentech, science is just the beginning of innovation. Together with the ophthalmology community, Genentech is transforming the treatment of retinal disease to give people the vision to live. To learn more, visit gene.com slash ophthalmology. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash ophthalmology. Uveal melanoma is the most common primary intraocular tumor in adults. The field has seen a fair number of advances in the past few years, but what is next on the horizon? Dr. Prithvi Maruthian Jaya provided an update at this year's AAO Retina Subspecialty Day. Dr. Maruthian Jaya is the director of the Ocular Oncology Service at the Byers Eye Institute at Stanford University, where he is also the director of the Vitreoretinal Surgery Fellowship Program and is an associate professor of ophthalmology. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Scott. You spoke about how doctors can detect uveal melanoma, how tumor classification has improved, how RNA-based gene expression profiling can group tumors into subgroups that predict metastatic risk. You spoke about a lot during your presentation. Uh, yes, I spoke about, uh, first off, kind of the current state of how uveal melanoma is diagnosed and managed. Kind of lay the framework for retina specialists who are often the first people that are seeing and making that diagnosis. It, the reality is that most patients who develop a uveal melanoma might not be symptomatic. So they are going to get their eyeglasses checked by their optometrist and uh, hopefully they've had a dilated eye exam and then there is something in the back of the eye. And that the, the first call might be then to the local uh, referring ophthalmologist, but often people know that it goes to the retina specialist. So I think for this audience, um, it was important for them to feel updated on the current status of how we make those diagnoses. And then to kind of tell them about the future a little bit in terms of options that may be available for these difficult situations with our patients. You spoke a little bit about some trials in uveal melanoma treatment. Can you give us a 10,000-foot view? Absolutely. So there's uh, kind of two angles of trials that are ongoing. One is trying to improve how we treat the melanoma in the eye, and the second is this whole issue of metastatic disease. So I'll touch on the first, if that's okay. Sounds great. This would be the non-radiation route? Right. The the non-radiation route, uh, it's by a company called Aura Biosciences, uh, which is put together kind of a first-in-cancer-type molecule. Um, where the eye is almost the perfect organ for it to be delivered. 
So basically what they've done is they've taken a viral particle, made it non-infectious, so it's not going to take over their body, um, and they've engineered it with kind of two different um, elements of that molecule. One element is a binding site that specifically binds to heparin sulfate molecules, which are expressed exclusively by tumor cells, uh, specifically in ocular melanoma. It's found to be uh, an important site. And the second is something that retina specialists are a little bit more familiar with, which is a light-activating component of the molecule, very typical to photodynamic therapy that we use in, in macular degeneration and other conditions. So this molecule is designed so that it not only then targets the tumor, but then has a receptor that is only activated as a kill switch when this certain wavelength of light is activated on it. So you deliver it with an intravitreal injection, something retina specialists are very used to. You wait some time for it to percolate through the retina and then attach itself onto the surface of the tumor. And then when you're ready, you put this non-damaging light into the eye, focused in like we're used to doing for other conditions. And that turns on the kill switch. So it causes oxidative damage, the tumor cells lice, but it does not kill the retina overlying it. So there's an opportunity here in these early trials to be able to uh, figure out, does it actually work? Is it reducing the size of tumor? Is it causing these tumors that we know would have grown based on all the clinical risk factors and prognostication you want to throw at it? And can we see a, either a plateau effect where the tumor just doesn't keep growing or does it start to shrink? So it's really an innovative way to think of any type of um, treatment for a local tumor. This sounds to me like this would uh, spare any vision that could be lost during radiation therapy. So that's the potential that this, this has because it's not causing secondary damage that radiation uh, would provide if you were going to treat with, say, proton beam or plaque radiation. Right now, the clinical trial focuses on posterior tumors, which are the ones that we're worried about anyway. So tumors in the macula, you know, near the center of the vision, that would take a lot of collateral damage from, say, a, a plaque that's placed in the back of the eye, almost assured that there would be collateral damage. So the thought here is that if you can kill the tumor but not damage the retina overlying it, you're going to achieve two goals. One is local control of the tumor, but also preservation of vision. And this is in phase one, phase two? So currently in phase two, um, with a, a planned expansion to phase three, probably in 2020. There are some trials about prevention for metastatic disease, which is important because there are no proven treatments for metastatic uveal melanoma, correct? Correct. Um, the whole notion of metastatic disease is one that we as ocular oncologists really struggle with because we can do a really good job through years of practice and, and data on controlling the tumor within the eye. And the point that I made in my talk was that the data also tells us that the concern is tumor cells leaving the eye even before the eye tumor is diagnosed. We call that micrometastatic disease. So um, you come in, I, I come into an office and I have a melanoma in my eye. There is data to suggest that maybe two years before I even showed up at my eye doctor's office, that melanoma may have actually thrown seeds into the blood system and are floating around. So it was too late to even catch any sort of metastatic disease. Correct. And, and it, still not may, it still may not be detectable if I went to get the best MRI scan in the world right at that moment. It may not manifest itself till much later. So this notion of micrometastases is something that we struggle with.
And there are some drug candidates out there, some therapeutic options? So a lot has been tried. Um, and I think the, the challenge of previous data has been um, the inability to properly risk stratify patients for these, uh, these studies. Uh, we know that not every patient with a uveal melanoma develops metastases, but a, a fair percentage do. Previous studies kind of lumped them together um, into one group, where some patients would take this trial medication and they would never be destined to have metastasis. So it kind of washed out some of the, um, the results. Recently, there was a trial um, run out of um, Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia and the uh, Will's Eye uh, Center group where they used a, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor called sunitinib, which is FDA approved for uh, renal cell carcinoma and other types of cancers, and has some interesting properties that may make it anti-melanoma as well. Um, this was a, a, uh, an early phase trial where they gave this medication to patients at a low dose, that's an oral medicine, and it's well tolerated without a lot of side effect. And after the time of their radiation treatment or their definitive eye surgery, they started taking this for about six months. And they followed these patients and compared them to historical controls, so patients that we know match their same size tumor and the same genetics and the same um, high-risk characteristics, and found that there was a benefit compared to historical controls of using this medication as a way to um, increase the, um, the propensity to prevent metastases. And this was even a more powerful finding in younger patients, which is where I think you know, we really want to focus um, patients under the age of 60 had a, a stronger survival benefit than those over 60. It sounds like there's some promising stuff coming down the pike. I think that um, there are some newer treatments now that uh, might kind of take the, the Star Trek and Star Wars and science fiction of uh, how we think of immunotherapy to the next level. So another company that um, has entered the space is called Immunocore, um, and they've made basically a, a novel bispecific um, complex. So it's, think of it as a, as a way to dock two different elements of, uh, of, of the care that's required to take care of metastasis. One looks for very specific proteins, GP100, that's expressed on the uh, metastatic melanoma cell and attaches to that. The second kind of reaches out for a certain population of primed T cells. So it's taking your own immune system and not just saying come close, it's saying come directly to this specifically bound uh, tumor cell and then causes that to get destroyed. Phase one data was released and patients that had had multiple other treatments for uveal melanoma that was metastatic and failed all of those. And in this heavily pretreated population, there was a rather impressive signal, even though it was a phase one trial, that's now promoting um, uh, expansion to a larger cohort in phase three. Great information. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This podcast is supported by Genentech Ophthalmology. Genentech works with the ophthalmology community to advance the understanding of serious eye disease and develop new technologies to transform care. Let's partner in doing more for patients. Learn how at gene.com forward slash ophthalmology. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash ophthalmology. Radiation retinopathy is a complication associated with brachytherapy and external beam radiotherapy. Lasers, steroids, and silicone oil placement, all of which have been used to address radiation retinopathy, have left something to be desired. 
Dr. Amy Scheffler discussed this topic at the AAO Redness of Specialty Day in San Francisco. Dr. Scheffler is an associate professor of clinical ophthalmology at the Blanton Eye Institute in Houston and is an ocular oncologist and vitreo retinal surgeon at the Retina Consultants of Houston. Thank you for coming by. Thank you for having me. Anti-VEGF therapy has been studied as a possible treatment for radiation retinopathy, correct? Correct. There are currently six clinical trials, prospective clinical trials with anti-VEGF therapy out there for this condition, um, a couple of which have been published, a couple of which are uh, in revision, and a couple of which are still enrolling patients. Now, as I understand it, there are some barriers to using anti-VEGF therapy for radiation retinopathy. That's correct. There are a lot of challenges here, as there are with other rare diseases. Um, first, the biggest barrier is cost. Um, if patients' insurance won't cover this um, this therapy, you know they're forced to pay out of pocket, and at the very least, in the United States, that can be very costly for patients, especially when it needs to be done on a monthly or bi-monthly basis. Um, and the underlying reason uh, that the insurance companies often won't cover it is that. Um, none of the FDA-approved drugs are actually labeled for this indication. A phase three clinical trial would be required in order to get that label? Not necessarily. It turns out that may not be the case. Um, we've, uh, we and others, um, as I mentioned, have um, done small uh, phase two investigator-initiated trials uh, looking at the use of these drugs for this condition, and um, the FDA is currently um, deciding whether that data may be strong enough to actually go ahead and pursue um, having the companies amend the labels. So to be decided, we're hopeful that it won't require a much larger uh, trial, which is obviously a, a big investment of time and money. Can you tell us about the design of the phase two trial that you just sure. referenced? Sure. Um, so the triple R study, the randomized study, um, was a two-year prospective randomized trial with 40 patients. There were three cohorts. Uh, one cohort was a monthly randomized cohort. The second cohort was a monthly treatment arm with targeted PRP to ischemic areas identified on wide field angiography. And the third group was a PRN ranibizumab group, also with the targeted laser protocol that I mentioned. On the second year of the trial, patients were all flipped over to a treat and extend protocol. And the reason we did this was to try to mimic the real world challenges of having patients have to come in every month. Okay, so just so I understand, uh, at the beginning, everybody's receiving ranibizumab. Some are receiving it monthly, others are receiving it as needed, uh, and then some patients are getting targeted lasers, some are not, and that's only for the first year. After that, everybody switches over to treat and extend therapy. That's correct. So tell me what you found. Sure. So the most important findings of the study were the following. First of all, the patients who received uh, monthly dosing in the first arm did the best. They had, on average, a four-letter gain over that first year, which was statistically significant when compared with baseline as well as compared with um, the other two groups, and most definitely statistically significant compared to historical controls. Um, the historical control patients... Um, uh, of which we typically use COMS data, um, the vision essentially starts going straight down from the time of radiation because the injury happens at that time and it's pretty severe. Our other important findings were that the patients who had laser, those in cohorts B and C, um, did not seem to have any significant improvement in vision um, as a result of the laser. Um, and again, that the monthly dosing really resulted in the best outcomes. Tell me what happened at year two. So at the beginning of year two, patients all switched over to a treat and extend protocol, similar to the way uh, treat and extend is approached in other more common diseases, such as um, wet AMD and DME. And what happened was that all of the patients essentially tended to go back to their baseline on average. So 
that's still a major improvement over historical controls, but clearly not as significant as monthly dosing. And what were the anatomic findings? So we looked at the central macular thickness using spectral domain OCT. In the first year, in the monthly group, uh, we found the most significant drying effect, but actually all three groups had a statistically significant effect over baseline, um, with the um, minimal, the least improvement of those three groups being about um, 80 micron improvement or so. But then again, in the second year, in the treat and extend uh, portion of the protocol, it was similar to the visual findings in that the gains, the anatomic gains were also um, minimized, um, and statistically the patients were all back to their baseline macular thickness. It seems like there are a lot of directions that we can go from here. What's coming next? So it depends on um, what the FDA decides to do. They may take this data and say, hey, this is enough to help out um, patients with this rare disease for this rare indication. And they may require us to do a much larger multicenter trial. Some of my um, collaborators around the country and I have already been planning for this, thinking about exactly how much we need to power the study, how many patients we need to have, and different ways we can approach this. Um, and we'll hopefully have information about that over the next few months. Dr. Scheffler, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this episode of New Retina Radio. Join us next time we have news to discuss. And in the meantime, head to iwire.news and retinatoday.com to catch up on the latest information. Subscribe to the podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast if you like what you heard. And tune in each Wednesday afternoon to iWire TV. Thanks for joining us.